0: Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program.
1: Dulol, I would like to excuse my presence on the sovereign lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects, my whaka'apa'apa, to the traditional custodians of these unceded lands on which this festival is held. I would also like to pay my upper to their elders, past, present and emerging. Dulol. My name is Winnie Dunn and I am a Tongan Australian writer from Mount Druitt and the General Manager of Sweatshop Literacy Movement. It is my humble privilege to bring to you the launch of Sweatshop's newest book, Black 10 years of First Nations storytelling edited by award-winning Wiradjuri artist Hannah Donnelly. Please do grab a copy of this gorgeous collection in the bookstore after this riveting Tala Thank you so much for joining us. Unfortunately, yep fortunately. The reason why um, Hannah isn't sitting where I am today uh, is because she's actually on maternity leave. So shout out to all the mums out there doing the most. Um, So she's asked me to fill in. Uh, Obviously, Hannah is irreplaceable, but I do hope to do a good job with the writers and artists that I absolutely admire as part of this collection. And here's who's joining me today. So next to me is Travis DeVries, a Gamilaroi Darug concept artist who works across more mediums than is culturally healthy. He is the producer and host of Fear of a Black Planet. In 2020, Travis founded the First Nations creative agency, Awesome Black, which fosters collaborations between Blackfella creatives. Right next to Travis is Ali Murphy Oates, Ali is a Nyampa, Weiwong woman based on Gadigal Gadigal and Bidjigal. Ali is Managing Director at Mooghalin Performing Arts and a freelance producer, arts administrator and consultant. She has recently served on the boards of Black Dance Australia, Theatre Network New South Wales and and and, sorry. And Mughal in Performing Arts, and currently serves on the Create New South Wales Aboriginal Arts and Col- Culture Advisory Board, the Australian Performing Arts Market First Nations Advisory Group, the Board of PAC Centre for Emerging Artists, <laughs> She's busy. She's and busy. the Executive Council of Life Performance Australia. Ali is the 2021 recipient of a Sydney Maya Creative Fellowship. Yes, Travis, I agree. Yeah. Ali is yeah. very busy. <laughs> that was Fucking painful. (laughs) Wink wink, twice if you need
2: us to save you.
1: (laughs) And obviously, uh, right at the end is Stephen Ross. Stephen is a proud Wamba Wamba man with cultural and familial connections to the Waradjuri, Muthi Muthi and Guddichimara peoples. He is also a proud queer man living on the lands of the Darug peoples in Western Sydney. He has studied dance and theatre, is a published writer, as well as a producer and curator of events, exhibitions, and other forms of public programming. He also also currently works for a local government, which includes working on major First Nations cultural infrastructure projects. Stephen has been on the board of several organisations, including Southwest, Southwest Regional Arts, Information Services, Australian Conservation Foundation, and the Inner City Legal Centre. Can we please give these very busy, wonderful people a round of applause? Hello. Um, so, thank Hi. you so much for joining me. I know, it's always so awkward when you read out those bios, but it just, again, shows how amazing you all are. So, Everyone knows who you are now, but my first question um, to you all is what prompted you to become an artist?
2: Um, It's a really weird question, Um, but thank you. Uh, From my perspective, I didn't really ever get prompted. It just was part of my, who I am. Um, And I think I like tried to get out of that for a little while, but it kept pulling me back in. Yeah.
0: Um, I'm not. Not an artist? <laughs> not an artist. Why? Not. I'm an arts admin person um, and I'm a full geek about it. Uh, and, um, but I was thinking about this. I made notes because I'm super nervous, right? So um, I think my sisters are here. At least one of them showed up late. I see you. Um, <laughs> and my sisters are both phenomenal storytellers. They're born storytellers. My beautiful sister Laura there is a journalist And Shelley, if you're here, you know, she's been a storyteller since she was a kid. And I've been their stage manager (laughs) for our entire lives. And I even, like, you know, made Laura... I wrote up a contract and made Laura sign it once. So, yeah, (laughs) firmly in the arts admin camp.
1: And Stephen, what about you? Artist or arts admin camp? Well, probably
0: a
3: mix of those two answers (laughs) as well, really. Nothing prompted me, I think. I come from a family, you know, full of song singers and songwriters and dancers and it just kind of comes naturally but um, I think um, if I didn't have this kind of expression I'd probably go mad because I'm basically a paper pusher and a bureaucrat <laughs> do it for my day job so I need this kind of cultural expression to keep myself sane, really.
1: The Rain also wanted to add that they're an artist as well. <laughs> um, so of course Blacklight is a sweatshop's definitive collection of 10 years of First Nations storytelling um, and the editor, Hannah Donnelly, commissioned you three specifically for new content. Um, Are we able to get an insight as to what that process was like working uh, with Hannah and why having a fellow First Nations editor was important to you as individuals? Uh, Stephen, did you want to...?
3: Yeah, I mean, Hannah, um, and I'm sure these two will agree, was incredibly patient. (laughs) Um, particularly with the deadline. Um, And she approached the um, pieces in a, um, I guess, a decolonised way. She told me not to worry about punctuation or um, particular choices of words. One bit of advice she did give me was, I think I'm going to get this right, um, is show, don't tell. Don't over-explain anything uh, in your piece. Actually, strip it back and don't be too... Whatever that word is, didactic or whatever, just actually let the, the story tell itself. And um, yeah, she was a she was a joy to work with.
0: Yeah, she gave me that too. Yeah, yeah. that advice. Um, that show, don't tell. Yeah, yeah. but she conned me, right? So, <laughs> um, like, I don't like, not an artist and I haven't really done much writing, but she, like, she really buttered me up. She was like, you're really good on Instagram. It's just a long-form version of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but, and then she was really, really kind and that, you know, when you're talking to a sister and just being, pumping each other up, like, that sisterhood's just so lovely to experience when, like me, you're just trying this out Um, And, you know, she'd say, I love the journey that you're going on. And I'm curious, what would happen if, or what would it look like this? And that was the way she prompted. Um, So it wasn't like, slash and burn. Yeah.
1: And Travis?
2: Um, Yeah, it was a really interesting process working with Hannah for me. Um, Because I'm not really used to, well, I am now, I wasn't at the time necessarily used to that sort of collaborative process between a writer and an editor. Um, uh, but Hannah's approach was, was really, really nice and incredibly soft and was like uh Hannah's just a joy to work with. Um, we had these great conversations around uh like what I wanted my piece to be and kind of where I saw it and uh because the dialogue uh, in my work doesn't necessarily feel uh, real, like like a real person's conversation. Um, uh, it's, it's meant to be sort of based on that like high fantasy style of writing where people sort of monologue at each other. Um, and yeah, so Hannah was like, oh, I want you to justify that to me within the Aboriginal context. And I was like, well, that's, you know, this is where I, I want to kind of elevate what I'm trying to say in this and draw out these monologues within these characters um, and, and let them go through these sort of emotional journeys within each sentence. Um, and that I also wanted each word or each line to almost read like poetry um, in a sense um, rather than like a more pedestrian version of writing because I, I kind of find writing about real life quite boring, or reading about real life to me, I feel very bored by it. Um, but I like this uh, hyper version of things, where things are bigger and more real or than, than they seem to me.
1: So, Travis, staying on you, since you were kind of already talking about your story, which leads into my next question is, um, can you dig a little bit deeper as to what your story is about and kind of give a synopsis to the audience for those who have yet to buy the book?
2: Yeah, you should all buy the book, by the way. (laughs) It's fucking good. (laughs) Um, The story that I've written um, is called First Scars, um, and it's told in two different timelines. One is the old woman uh, who is talking to her sort of acolytes around a fire in a cave um, and telling the story of how she first became radicalised. And I'm, I'm going to air quotes around radicalised because it's about how she started to step into her power um, and took over Australia from a black perspective again. Um, and she tells the story as an old woman, of her as a young woman first starting that journey within her family home and having a conversation with her mom and her dad and her granddad around uh, a coffee table where they're drinking tea and coffee. Um, and she has an incredible sort of realization within, within that space. And... Uh, the conversation is really parallels between sort of the feminism movement with the, like, first, second, third generation of feminism and how they have interacted with each other, because I saw a lot of parallels between that and the First Nations political movements. And I wanted those conversations to be told in an exciting way that people could, like, grip onto and want to be, uh, inspired to tear this system down. And Ali,
1: what about you? A synopsis of your story?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, but, uh, okay, so Hannah, uh, her, her kind of provocation was to say, uh, write about, or she's interested in stories of place. Um, and I originally was going to write about Parramatta, spoiler, um, but uh, but it was miserable, so I stopped. Um, uh, I'm born and raised on the central coast on dark Nyung country uh, from a little surfy, coasty Town that kind of has a lot going on but maybe not that much going on and the beach is really the the centre focus or one of the centre focuses of the town. Everyone stops to look at the surf or stops at the surf club to get a coffee and, um, yeah, that sort of... Everything is faced toward the beach as well. So I wanted to write about that. Um, I'm also a bit obsessed with the story of how the second flagpole got installed at the surf club uh, kind of illegally <laughs> as, um, and that the council doesn't recognize it as an as a official flagpole and so community members have to put the flag up and down <laughs> um, the Aboriginal flag up and down our flag up and down uh, and so yeah I wrote um, I wrote I imagined a conversation about that being planned and then I wrote from the perspective of our dad who is one of the flag bearers, um, who I read it to earlier today, and he was like, oh, that's really lovely, bub. I've got some notes, but I've got to go put the flag down.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Stephen, what about you?
0: Um, mine's
3: a weird story. It's, um, it is based in uh, Parramatta, and I, I love uh, living out there and the connection to Darug, uh, the traditional owners of Parramatta. Um, so I wanted it to be an ode to Parramatta, um, in a few years, I'd um, worked on a project at Barangaroo with Jackie Troy, um, the Aboriginal linguist and superstar, and she talked about how um, there's a kind of liminal, Sydney is a liminal space where when, the, when it gets dark, it's like a curtain kind of falls over the city and you can really imagine um, the space as it was... 150, 200 years ago, even more, Um, and that time and space kind of have no meaning then. You can kind of really imagine what it was like all that time ago, Um, and I feel that way and that connection with Parramatta. I think there's this, um, yeah, beautiful connection to country that Darug um, express all the time, and they talk about Parramatta as a meeting place and a special place for them because of the meeting of the salt water, fresh water um, but it always has been a meeting place for um, their mob um, so I really wanted to kind of take a dreamscape journey through Parramatta so kind of in and out of consciousness throughout the piece and dreaming about different parts of Parramatta and then but then coming back to the reality of the kind of white colonial um, capitalist part of Parramatta so it's a bit Kind of jarring, and
1: yeah, and. but such power going on, and so I wondered if you also wanted to read out a small piece um, based on that awesome synopsis of yours. Sure,
3: um, I won't read um, the bit about showgirls because I think you've got a question about that later. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, my piece is called liminal It's a fragment of a dream, so. It, It's actually half a piece, Hannah um, has told me I need to finish it, so there's probably another five to eight pages left of this story. The whirring buzz of the bull-roarer rippled through the still warm air of the impending dusk. It was that time on a Sunday afternoon when the light starts to slow and bend, stretching into the delicious pit of summer darkness. The buzz startled me out of my blissful trance with its call to ritual stomp, stomp, feet and toes pushing and reaching through the sand, push, push, and again push, feeling, testing, pushing and pushing. I was staring at the glistening water of the swollen river as it churned the silt from the murky bottom to the air and light of the surface. I was waiting and waiting and holding my breath to see if the misunderstood creature would poke its slippery head through the sparkling film of the top layer of the Barramatta River, Around me, country danced and vibrated with the waves of pulsating heat. The little creatures that sheltered and hid from the glare of the sun were still and silent so as not to expend energy, a summer-day hibernation, save for the frenzy of night protected and unencumbered by darkness. <clears throat> Ali, I wondered if you wanted to share a bit
1: of maybe what you shared with your dad this morning? (laughs) (laughs) Okay,
0: all right. Uh, So my piece is called Surf Pole. Nah, but listen, why shouldn't we fly it? He's a top bloke, taught us a lot, hasn't he? Why not put one up, fly it proud? Yeah, fair enough, but how? Do we write to council? Nah, fuck council. Who'd want to get them involved? just do it ourselves. (laughs) Oh yeah, go on then. You want to shimmy up that pole? Nah, I mean do it ourselves, like put another pole in. What? Another pole. Why not? Be hilarious. Dead of the night, dig it up and boom, it's there next morning. It's basically what Jeanette and Suze did in January. Imagine his face. Betty cries. Benny and Robbo are sinking tinnies under the trees. It's an overcast day and the swell is rubbish, so they're the only ones who have shown up. They're about five down each when the topic of old fella comes up. A pot-bellied, skinny-ankled Santa clone with kangaroo leather skin and scars on his arms and chest that have come up bulbous and bleached. Statesman-like in his speech and revered in their circle. When he speaks, whales appear. Hmm? Yeah, but how? Well, you've been excavating your old place, right? Yeah. Well, Waz has got a connection. He actually just did a job like this up north. Knows where to buy the thing, how to put it in and everything. Reckons he can get a flag for free from your local member. You, you've already spoken to him. Yeah, and when he was around your place last weekend, he noticed you've got the exact same machine he used last time for the digging. The digging? Yeah, and Tezza said he could put some money in. You spoke to Terry already too. Mm, saw him down the shops this morning. Said he'd speak to Paulie and Davo. Jesus, how many people are in on this? And he reckons they'd chuck in as well, considering how well the young fellas shaped up after that camping trip. Yeah, they're good kids, really. Just needed a talking to. You know his little girl is due soon, too. They take a sip, staring out to the grey wash of ocean. A young boy, sticky sun brown with busted boogie board in hand, sprints across the wet sand with purpose. For a moment, it looks like he'll hurl himself into the mess of waves and weed, and both men tense up. Tins down, back straight, expert eyes on the action. Instead, as the water of the last wave wave recedes, the boy frisbees the foam slab down and leaps to land both feet on it, skidding a few metres along the shoreline before tilting forward, arms at odd angles for balance, then landing at a run again. The board is spat backwards, and the next wave nudges it up the slope of sand for collection. Nice. (laughs) I might stop there. (laughs)
1: Take
2: us away, Travis. Uh, there's a, this is being recorded, and there's a line in mind that if is used uh, without context will probably get me speared later, so. I was 16, barely. I had only blown out the candles on my birthday cake two days ago. My family standing lovingly around me Beautiful voice, leading the singing of Happy Birthday. Everyone else attempting to mumble along below her. I was young, 16 is young, but I was old enough, old enough to start something. My family already called me by the name Billy. I walked into the back room of my old family home I never thought of this house as run down, even if it was. It was clean, probably because we didn't have much more than we needed. To me, it was home. My mother and father looked up from their cups of tea as I entered the room. I don't want to be Aboriginal anymore. I remember the words cracked as they left my throat catching on the end of my tongue. It was the first time I had said them. My grandfather, we called him uncle, didn't look up. He continued to stare at his cup full of black sugary tea and made a barely perceptible nod that said more than a nod that size should say. The winter light pierced through the windows. The glare from the table would always cause me to squint in the mornings. The light was slowly beginning to warm the room. I don't want to be Aboriginal anymore. This time the words came out bold and clear like an oration, the cadence of the words echoing around the room and flowing back into me. It felt good to hear. My mother's eyes narrowed and I watched as her whole body sighed for a moment before she caught herself and stared at me. My father picked up his tea, raised his eyebrow and wrapped his knuckles on the table. Uncle continued, staring at his cup. I'm going to leave it there.
1: Um, I always get such a joy um, hearing and reading your pieces. Um, and I know in the context of such... Um, climate crisis, weather, and with the election, um, I I know how much, or I feel how much pressure is, is is put on First Nations people to to be a voice through that kind of chaos, but but I know that kind of pressure doesn't leave a lot of room for you guys to be artists and be asked um, questions as artists and writers, and so I wanted to ask you, Stephen, to kind of kick us off um, really a, a the kind of nuts and bolts of your piece, because I love how vivid uh, the imagery was uh, from the relatability to Showgirls, which you, didn't, which you mentioned slightly, <laughs> um, while the narrator's kind of in this donut uh, sugar coma uh, and the surreal depictions of Barramatta River. Um, how important is imagery and description in your writing?
3: Ali's giving me a look. About <laughs> <show girls. laughs> and there's a few people here that kind of know I'm completely obsessed with Showgirls. Um, really? And I think it's like a, um, it's, there's a lot of revision around Showgirls. Now people are looking back at it and uh, seeing its actual... Um, well, what, what they think is its true worth. Um, I think it's kind of an accidental masterpiece. I don't think they intended it to, um, to have that kind of revision and kind of... Um, you know uh, re- you know the uh, the um, kind of metaphors that it s- supposedly stands for but anyway i think it's a fucking great film and um what i love about it for me is like it it's the kind of real expression of how superficial capitalism and colonialism is um so if for me it was a perfect example to kind of compare it to what i think is the real like our dreaming and our kind of connection to country is the real connection and the kind of real science and the real knowledge, um, because it's the oldest and most sustainable. So I wanted to compare, and it's throughout the piece, it's not just showgirls, it's all the other kind of materialistic and, you know, kind of really attractive things about colonialism, because that's the trick, right? Like, there's lots of attractive things you don't want to give up. Um, But then there's this underlying kind of knowledge and um, history and connection that kind of flows through everything and we're the ones that have it. Um, so the imagery and, and use of metaphors, has to you have to use that because it's that kind of intersection between, you know, the known and unknown um, and to explain that and ex- to explain what, what it is to be liminal and being in a liminal space, you know, you have to use that kind of, you know, literary trick to kind of explain what you're talking about but it's something we kind of know innately so
1: and so speaking of that liminal space in terms of writing Ali we've been going back and forth about the word experimental I personally find your piece very um experimental and so can you take us through the process um of of your of your story and and how you wrote it Sure. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, you cannot agree that it is not <laughs> experimental.
0: So she sent the questions in ahead, and I was like, "Experimental," because <laughs> I work in theatre. So really, I just wrote a script and then took all of the scripty bits out. Um, and so it's a real—it's a comfort. Like it's my comfort zone <laughs> um, is dialogue between people. And uh, I was just looking at my notes right now. Um, like, I, I don't know, I think it's really interesting to build a word only based on dialogue, on what's, what's being said or unsaid between two people. That's kind of the beauty of, of text-based theatre, um, is the subtext. And so, yeah, I just wanted to write that. And also, I think men talk really funny. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, and that, like, yeah, I wanted cool. to, ima- I wanted to imagine actually a slightly more heartfelt conversation between two blokes as well, like going like, yeah, wouldn't it be nice if we did this for someone else? I'm sure you do that conversation. I'm just not privy to it. Um, but yeah, and then, uh, uh, the, the kind of format, I put it in italics because I think italics is a real sneaky way of writing, like, you know, if you're writing something in italics, it's like you're whispering. Or like, you know, you're standing on the other side of a tree listening to them talk. I don't know. It was just a silly game I was playing. But yeah, that's sort of how it worked. And you know, people hardly ever talk in whole sentences. Like I've jumped between four different thoughts just now. Uh, And uh, this is very unnatural, being able to just sit here and blabber, without being interrupted. Um, uh, usually when we yarn, we're like, oh, yeah, and then blah, blah, and then blah, blah, you know, like we're finishing each other's sentences. And so I tried to do that a bit.
1: Amazing. Um, and so, Travis, when I was doing a copy edit um, of White, I read your work, uh, your piece in particular, as a form of speculative fiction. Uh, would you think that's an apt description or would you disagree?
2: Yes. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's accurate.
1: <laughs> why, why speculative oh, fiction? Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> um, well, it's a, like f- speculative fiction it, for me is just an inter- interesting space to play in um, because uh, it allows you to dream the dream you want and see how characters will play out that situation and you can work towards an ideological goal um, and sort of set forward an idea and put down roots of how we can work to achieve it. Um, and the like speculative fiction space gives me that uh, vehicle to play in, but it also gives me a vehicle uh, to like bring other blackfellas' thoughts into that space Um, When I was writing this, uh, I was incredibly inspired and always have been by uh, our matriarchs because they are like the backbone of uh, our society Um, as uh, I have very, very strong political feelings, um, but I know that I am not the person to be on the front line. I have a lot of trouble with that. Um, and I am, like, so inspired by the conversations and things that I see in that political space. Um, but I'm able to go, with with my writing and with my kind of other work that I do with Fear of a Black Planet, with, which is, like, set in the same world as this story, um, I'm trying to give uh, other blackfellas space to, safe space to kind of go through that thought process of what a future sovereign black nation could be and how we achieve it. Um, And whether that is through uh, political pressure or through violence is really up to the characters within that speculative fiction space to figure out for themselves, with me kind of guiding that process along. Um, I often feel like when I'm working on this writing, um, which I'm extending into a novel at the moment, um, that I am, I am just like feeding off this sort of, uh, zeitgeist of information that I see across social media and in like conversations with my peers around, uh, politics and ideologies and where we want to get to and how fucking hard it is to exist in the colony. And the writing that I do just sort of comes out and I'm not necessarily uh, directing it that much. It is just coming through and onto the page.
1: Yeah, so I guess picking up on topics, really important topics that all three of you said from kind of colonialism and the lures of capitalism and uh, yarning and and that kind of... um, the structure of yarning and, and matriarchs and, and all of these things. I, As First Nations people from various countries, what is the importance of inter-First Nations dialogue to you? And I'm asking that in light or in black light of, of two things. Blacklight being a 10-year showcase of all the content written by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people and creatives that Sweatshop has worked with in the past, and the general public currently casting their votes at the election polls today. Ali, did you want to start us off? It's a big question. Well, I, I think that um,
0: the important, there's sort of two points of uh, exchange when it comes to exchange between First Peoples for me. And it's uh, intercultural exchange with uh, folks from other continents, uh, and intracultural exchange between our own nations and tribes. And I'm really interested in the latter, uh, and you know, being able to, to contribute something to a book that is situated from Dharug country first and then further out, um, because I think a lot of my work is about uh, prefacing Southeast identity. Um, and you know, being strong and proud as a Koori woman, as a Wiradjuri woman, uh, and making sure that we are seen and heard on our stages, uh, in our theatres, in our fashion shows. Looking at you. Um, uh, and y- you know, uh, that intra-cultural dialogue between mob is also staunchly about making sure that there is not a perceived eradication of Southeast identities either. Um, and that we are speaking to each other in, and supporting each other in our mutual uh, missions and struggles across this continent. Uh, and actually to that, with the voting today, I mean, if any of us um, are enrolled to vote and have chosen to vote today, I'm not going to tell you whether or not to enroll to vote, but um, uh, to paraphrase something I saw from uh, Meriki Onus uh, down in Nam. Like, we got mobs uh, in remote areas who actually aren't able to vote today because the AEC hasn't serviced their area. Uh, and so, if you haven't gone to the polling station yet, go and vote in their interests. Um, and that's sort of. Yeah. And, Stephen, what
1: about you? Intracultural dialogues? Sorry. Interruption
3: you. Uh, uh, well, I don't think it's just always existed for. Blackfellas. I mean, you read out incorrectly my the list of my you know Aboriginal identities: Wamba Wamba, Wiradjuri through my father, Muddy Muddy through my grandmother, Gunditjmara through my my other grandfather, and so (laughs) we're kind of imbued with that intercultural connection. And there's this kind of you know deeper conversation uh, when those kind of connections happen uh, between kin. but even just, you know, Parramatta's a river, you know, river country. I come from river country along our College or the Edward River and um, Dungala or the Murray River. And, you know, we always said, you've got to look, look after what's upriver because it affects what's downriver. Um, and it's just, a simple, it's just a simple philosophy and a way of looking at the world and an Indigenous worldview. And it you know, the river wouldn't be in the trouble that it is now if um, Aboriginal knowledge was respected um, and embedded in everyday practice because I think our knowledge can save the world in the the kind of crisis that it's in at the moment. And not just environmentally, just talking to each other and having conversations with each other. Um, Yeah, it's vital. It's the life force
1: yeah thank you and apologies evidently i I still have a lot to learn so That's thank all right. you um and travis, uh, what about you?
2: I'm still getting my head around the question <laughs> Sorry. yeah I think yeah, yeah, yeah. the
1: importance of intracultural dialogues as as Ali was saying between uh other first nations people and um kind of in light of the political climate that we're in today
2: yeah it's i mean it's very interesting um i we are forced to kind of participate in a system that we didn't consent to and didn't have informed consent to be a part of. Um, and uh, as a sovereign First Nations person, um, I think I'm at the point where I'm like, we still need to have these conversations with our, within our own like individual groups of mobs, which, because, that system was disrupted for so long and is still rebuilding that I struggle to kind of see a way I can have that conversation in a uh, inter-community dialogue often. And those are, like all of those things are happening at once and you don't really have a choice in having to do that. But I'm within my conversations with other mob from everywhere else uh, I'm not sitting at a place of power within my own space yet. And so, like, I kind of recognise that and acknowledge that before I kind of move forward in conversations with other mob um, around any of that. Um, like, I absolutely respect mob who choose not to vote um, and participate in the system that's being forced upon us, um, which, you know, is a... Some people argue that it is a privilege to not vote and it's you're throwing that opportunity to change something away but uh I, that's bullshit um yeah we're uh we've been given a unfair decision to make in this situation um and we're not going to be a part of the system And change it that way. Mm. But you know, I I still do have to be a part of like capitalism and shit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Go buy our book. Yeah.
1: So so much to navigate. Um, But I guess, Travis, staying on you and, and kind of my last question. Uh, and maybe a, a bit of a lighter, more hopeful question. What are you working on now?
2: Um, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm on a panel next week for Vivid, or in two weeks, called Slashies, because I don't ever do one thing. Um, I, I don't focus on one project. I focus on about 15 at once, um, and I'm super happy with how I work on that. Uh, I run um, this beautiful company called Awesome Black where I get to work with all of my incredible friends that I brought together and built a system that participates in capitalism but uses our kind of common strength to work to tear it down bit by bit um, through artistic movements and uh, financial opportunities for blackfellas as much as possible. Um, We just launched last week um, a subscription box service um, called the Awesome Black Box, where we uh, curate a selection of First Nations products that's a secret until you get it in the mail every three months Um, because I want to create a system of blackonomics, uh, and I was really looking for that support around that sort of thing, like, five or six years ago and figuring out how to do that. And then I was like, oh, I've just got to fucking do this myself. Okay. All right, let's do it that way then. Well, yeah. So that's what I'm working on at the moment.
1: Awesome. And Ali, what about you? Budgets. 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 <laughs> <laughs>
0: no. Um... Uh... <laughs> Oscar reporting. Vegans <laughs> <with> here. <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> yes, we did it.
0: We did it. Um, uh, no, so uh, our company Mughalin Performing Arts, who is a resident company here at uh, Carriage Works, but also a company in residence at uh, Blacktown Arts. We tonight are closing a show called *The Last Shot* Ooh. by Biripai Gomoroi man Troy Russell. Um, yeah, which is really <laughs> lovely. I'm missing it. <laughs> Uh, so, that Troy wrote a really beautiful EP. He's a composer. He wrote an EP of songs based on the, the love story of his great grandparents, and we've taken those songs to the stage with some storytelling around it. Um, we also have a work in Sydney Biennale at the moment down at the wharves uh, called Nyapa Yan Nibi Animatagzi. It's a collaboration with uh, our cousins from Nipissing First Nations outside of Toronto in Turtle Island, Canada, um, swapping stories uh, of water and serpents. Uh, It's a beautiful video installation and it's an ongoing exchange that we'll be having with them and making more and more uh, installation and performance outcomes over the years. I don't know, we're just doing stuff. (laughs) Uh, I'm also... um, uh, until tomorrow, the guest host of Indigenous X on Instagram, oh. which is a really awesome black-run media company who are probably better known for their Twitter account, which is guest-hosted each week. Um, and then they got me to figure out or just kind of be the guinea pig on doing it on Instagram. So I'll probably take – can I take a video of everyone later <laughs> at the end? That'd be cool. Awesome. Yeah, just being dumb on the internet. <laughs> no. yeah.
3: What? That's why you commented. It was an Indigenous X commented on my
0: I Instagram it up. Oh last my God. night. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> it wasn't you. Nice. So I'm doing
0: well. Penny <laughs>
3: <laughs> just dropped. Yeah, just no, I've just
2: been scrolling and liking <laughs> as Indigenous X.
3: It was a really shady comment I made about my friend, an
2: Indigenous X like, had a, a laugh emoji on oh there. Oh, my God. <laughs> you didn't you didn't you didn't interact with any At of my least I didn't, Sally.
0: like do any eggplant let me, emojis
2: or let like. me screencap that before you delete it
0: i'm not going to
3: delete uh,
2: it oh good good
3: but um, this question triggered me actually because I delivered about four projects during Mardi Gras and it was kind of mental mm. and I've um, only just recovered um, so I'm working on a couple of uh, projects for World Pride um, next year, so one's a um, poetry anthology and a series of workshops for queer um, poets uh, for black books at Tranby uh, with um, Alison Whitaker, wonderful Alison Whitaker. Um, and we're thinking of trying to tie that into the next uh, Bamali exhibition, Mardi Gras exhibition next year, where the artists respond to the poems that are produced. Um, so, uh, and the other one is a kind of a national exhibition highlighting queer um, black um, elders, you know, the, the people that we uh, stand on the shoulders of and kind of doing interviews and podcasts and uh, beautiful portraits um, and then kind of showcasing them around Australia um, and hopefully writing more. I've got a couple of things up my sleeve but um, probably going to need to finish this one um, for um, Hannah and, um, yeah, a couple other things um, on the back burner, so...
1: Can't wait yeah. for that new writing. Um, can everyone please thank me with these amazing artists, people, writers? <clears throat> and you can read the rest of their work and others in Blacklight over at the bookstore right after this, but we have 10 minutes. For question time, and so I think there's two mics. Maybe it might be
0: different for you, Al, I don't know, because I know some of your characters are the old white surfy blokes in our hometown, but maybe for the others. I'm interested in this idea of permission or communication when you're writing stories about your own family or your own mob. I always find it incredibly. Hard, just terrified of diving in and then, you know, not having the right permission and conversations going on. So, yeah, I'm wondering what that was like for you and what it is like for you when you're writing stories. Yeah. Uh, Do you
3: want Thank you for asking that because I, when I was responding to another one in my notes, um, that was a bit I didn't mention. I, I, when I worked on my piece, because it was about Parramatta and Darug, I worked with um, Aunty Julie Jones who edited... The piece for me, and help me with the language um, that I was using. So that kind of traditional owner permission was really important for me. Um, and I definitely talked to my mum about using some of the stories she told me because mum and I have this weird, like once she had a dream that she was pregnant, and at the same that same night I had a dream that I was in her womb, and so I used. I know, kind of creepy. Um, so I used um, one of her dreams in my stories. So I, yeah, definitely had to have those conversations, both with the traditional owners and um, anyone I used in my stories. And I'll always do that um, with, anything, with anything that I write. Was that the question? Sorry, the right. Oh, good.
0: That was my sister. <laughs> <laughs> um, and hi, Shelley. <laughs> Uh, so, um, uh, well, yous no. but I just wrote it and then told dad that I wrote it. Um, and then, like, sort of retrofitted permission, but I, when I, re- when I read it out to him this afternoon, the note that he actually gave me was that he was shitty that I gave him a potbelly. Um.
2: <laughs> does he not have so, a potbelly?
0: I mean, does he? Uh, like, look, well. I'm not going to comment on recorded. my dad's body any further. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and, and, and actually, the, the kind of the thing of permission with that flagpole is that they didn't fucking get permission. They just put it in. And now they are, like, deeply responsible and really care about it as well. And so um, I just thought it was fun to, to play with that or to, to write on that. But, yeah, I, um, I, I didn't really get dad's permission.
2: Um, I Yeah, it's an interesting question because it's like I can talk about the mechanics of getting permission and stuff like that or the philosophy around getting permission within cultural aspects. Uh, But it's interesting, like a lot of the work I do is I'm creating fictional characters and working in that space, so it's a little bit different. Um, But I'm... uh, Obviously influenced and inspired by the real life people around me Um, and within that it's my perspective of them so I'm talking I'm not speaking for anyone or about anyone in particular it's my kind of feelings and experience of them as a part of my world um, and as a like, sovereign human being in my space. Um, And so, like, often, like, I've worked in kind of the arts for many years, and, like, the theatrical side of the arts at the moment, there's been a real, like, focus on permission around storytelling and intellectual, cultural property rights, which is absolutely important. Um, And, but from a personal perspective, I, like, often disagree with how those uh, mechanics are used to dampen creativity in uh, First Nations communities who are wanting to try to make interesting things because it's like a it's a blunt axe that's kind of swung at a way of doing and it's like a blanket approach to things when we're not a blanket approach, we're not a pan-aboriginal experience.
0: It's a more nuanced thing, right? And yeah. like so the beautiful Nadi Simpson who spoke at the opening, um, her work is really, really lovely because everything is elder-led. Her writing, her her songwriting, her approach to new projects, it has to be elder-led. And that actually is what, what I'm talking about when I talk about permission is like what do our mob wanna wanna see or hear. In our creative expression, and like through the arts administration side of my life, um, cultural protocol comes first in the budget. Like that's how we use the tools to to do better. Is that we pay people appropriately, and we pay people what they're wor- like what they're worth. Um, and we uh, and like for us in particular. Um, an elder working on a project is a senior artist regardless of whether or not there's also a director and a playwright and a la 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 you know like it's um that's what I think of when I think of permission not about like go out and make sure they say it's fine and then come back it's about who is included in the storytelling
2: yeah and very little of what I do is elder led or elder involved um it's kind of it is storytelling from uh, me as a younger Gamilaroi Darug person, um, and involving collaborators from all over. So by like, it is about informed consent and agency for those people who are a part of that process. Um, so when I invite a collaborator in, we talk through what that means and how we're going to use things, and uh, yeah, we have that conversation, and it happens. But it's not a like. Um, we, yeah, and we do contracts and all of those things around that, but it's not something that we like think of from a sort of policy point of view or a, like a systems point of view. It's like we practice that system naturally now um, and always have. Um, it's like for me, that system is for white fellas to be kind of they need to step up and practice that because they haven't been. Um, But, yeah, I'll bust ahead here if I need to.
0: How do you guys keep on your mental
1: health and how do you navigate so many projects and not let them bleed into each other and just keep them separated?
2: That's a good question. In in terms of my mental health sort of side of things, um, I mean, I've built a with my community, a really good support system around who I am and what I do. Um, and we have check-ins around that. And we've built a community around the creative work we do. And, you know, we're constantly having check-ins and making sure, and but also saying, hey, no, I'm okay, I don't need to be checked in on. Um, and, like, giving people that, agency, which is a word I kind of use quite a lot to uh, communicate and make decisions and uh, just, like, be strong within themselves?
3: Um, Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, uh, For me, the process of doing the work itself is how I maintain my mental health. Um, Writing's the hardest. Out of everything I do, it's the hardest one. Um, it's the one I love the most, but it is definitely the hardest one. Um, so learning to accept my process, and a couple of friends of mine here know that I procrastinate quite a lot, watch a lot of Netflix and showgirls. Um, uh, but, yeah, so accepting that process of procrastination, and actually, that I'm, ri- I'm writing as I'm procrastinating anyway... Um, and yeah, for me, it's the, the work itself, like I said, if I, that balance between what I do during the day, um, which I also love, but it's a different part of my brain and different part of my heart and soul, um, to you know, working with artists and creatives and, 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 and producing my own work, um, that, that's a completely different side to me. So as long as I've got that balance, I'm happy. If one took over from the other, I think that's when I'd probably crack and
0: you'd all be sorry. <laughs> yeah, you can take it out on me. It's all right. It's all right. So, yeah. um, that was a really lovely question. What's your name? Amber. Amber. thanks. And whose country do you live on? Yeah, Deadly. You're a Sydney girl. Love it. Um, I don't, Sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot there. It's just, yeah. I, like, Q&As are awkward, right? So I'd just rather talk to you, Amber, um, and say, my mental health is fucked. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's okay. <laughs> I have good days and I have bad days. I, um, I live with anxiety and I, uh, I go through periods of deep depression um, and I think it's actually really important to acknowledge that and to talk about it. Um, and, you know, I'm an idiot on the internet sometimes and I use Instagram as a bit of a, a journal for that, you know. Um, yeah, <laughs> where, uh, like, I'd rather just yarn about it. And then um, in my workplace, that's really important because uh, what I'm trying to show is that you bring your whole self to your job. You don't switch off. You're Aboriginal all the time um, and your mental health doesn't take a break when you walk through the office door either. And so try to give that understanding and courtesy to everyone else that I work with and, un- and know what we're bringing to the table each day. Yeah. Um, and th- particularly when working in, like... Uh, cultural arts, uh, It's what we're doing is um, expression of identity a lot for blackfella arts, expression of identity, expression and connection to community. Like, we're actually really tapping into that quite a lot. Um, and so I really love your piece because... Can I do another spoiler? Like, you talk about the prevalence of death... Um, as a way of, of opening up your piece, and uh, w- we engage with death and illness like a fuck ton um, in blackfellow communities. That's a, a an actual stat, um, and uh, uh, I think it's kind of okay to say, "Hey, that's a lot," <laughs> um, and it may be normal for us, but it's not normal and we can hold each other with that um and and be caring and understanding and know when we're going through sorry business and we're going through whatever we're going through that we have to treat each other gently and kindly so yeah
1: thank you so much we have time for maybe one very quick question in the last two minutes if anybody wants to get up Okay, I'm going to remember the question this time. What's your um, favourite project that you've worked on and why?
2: <laughs> Probably my next one, always.
0: Oh, that's a smart answer. No, that's a good
2: answer. Yeah. I do that, yeah. so you, you can just use that if you want as well. Just...
3: <laughs> um, uh, Deadly Solid Staunch, the exhibition I did for Bumali that just happened in um, March, was my favourite because it's. Yeah, it was a celebration of, um, you know, young, queer... Well, not just young, young and elder queer artists. And we had... Part of it was this memory wall where the community submitted um, photos from their own collection, and it was like a memory wall. And they're actually just incredibly beautiful photos, like, just in themselves, just beautifully composed. But people stopped and paused at that wall for... At, you know, ages, and they'd go around and see the other paintings, and they'd stop at that wall and have conversations about people they know or faces that they might remember from a Mardi Gras march or that they'd slept with or, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was my favourite, um, that was my favourite project.
0: Um, Muglin does uh, a festival every two years called Yellow Mundi Festival, uh, which is a word for storyteller. It started as a playwriting festival in 2013 uh, and has since progressed to a multi-arts festival, but it's a development festival, so it's about getting a national call out for work for the stage, uh, movement, sound or writing uh, and giving six artists from anywhere around Australia, six blackfella artists, um, two weeks of development time with a full company of actors, uh, director, dramaturg, whoever they need um, to further develop the work and then do three days of showings. And it has been a platform for so much black theatre in this country. Mm-hmm. And it just makes me so happy to see that. Um, that, uh, you know, um, Belvoir produced At What Cost by Nathan Maynard earlier this year, that was a Yellamundi work. Um, we have presented The Visitors by Jane Harrison here in, in Carriage Works, as well as The Weekend by Henrietta Baird. Um, I can't remember actually everything, but like the, the, it's just really freaking cool to see that we've, we've contributed to this sort of explosion in amazing blackfella work on the stage.
1: Well... My favourite project of yours is Blacklight. So
3: please Please,
1: (laughs) please do grab a copy at the bookstore and please meet these lovely writers over at the book signing table near Bay 23. Can we all give uh, everybody a round of applause?
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.